This episode is brought to you by The Athlete's Foot. Welcome to The Wrap, a weekly podcast covering women's sports news. Bez, what have we got around the grounds this week? Jess Fox wins her first gold of the season. I love the way you put first gold, like because there's going to be a there's thousand be plenty more. more. Penny Taylor will be inducted into the FIBA Hall of Fame and more than 20 sporting bodies have come together to urge Australians to vote yes in the upcoming referendum. For the key story, we'll discuss new restrictions on the English lionesses that could see them breaching contracts they've already signed with commercial partners ahead of the FIFA World Cup this year. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah. We'll get to it, though. We will. I can see how eager you are to talk about it. <laughs> Bursting. So some other big news that happened over the weekend. You dropped on us and a lot of unsuspecting people that you'd had the crayons out. You've been yeah, writing. I actually, it's a full written book, not even just a picture book this one. <laughs> Could you believe it? It is called... Girls Don't Play Sport. It's going to be out on bookshelves August 15th and it's all about the rise of women's sport and why it matters. I'm just super pumped to read it because she hasn't let anyone read it yet, folks, and it's really weird. No one's read it besides my editor. You've been begging. My mum's been begging. Riley, <laughs> no, no one's read it. I should probably get to that part before it's on a bookshelf. We'll get there eventually. Well, I've, I've, I jumped online and paid for one because I'm like that worried that I actually won't be able to read it any other way. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'll put the pre-order link in the show notes. Thank you for the reminder. Get around it, guys. It, it will be awesome and very proud of you. Thank you very much. And thank you for your research assistance. Kind regards. <laughs> my name is Chloe Dalton. I'm joined every week on the show by my co-host, Bez. Present. How was your weekend? How was first week back at school? First week back of pre-season was, it was really good. It was a fun week. It was intense in parts, but. It was nice. It was nice to be officially back training. We've been training for quite some time, so it was nice to be officially back. Yeah, and, and the officialness obviously has translated to a whole heap of social media posts coming out, posters, posts, posters, posts coming out of the AFLW kind of galaxy, and it's great seeing all the girls back on the track. It's good, isn't it? The track. It's not a track. It's a field. It's an oval. It's definitely not a running track. I don't know why they call it a track. <laughs> hey, a train track. Exciting news. This Thursday, we're dropping a brand new podcast series. It's with Nike, The Edge of Change. First episode is going to be with Matilda's player, Emily Van Egmond. I'm pretty excited, Bez. Thursday morning. Make sure you've subscribed because it'll be in your ears then. I saw Emily had a big announcement last I week. Know, yeah, Congratulations to Emily. Congratulations. Forever is a long time. That's what someone told me when I got married. Let's take a look around the grounds. <laughs> In athletics, the 1,500-metre final at Italy's Florence Diamond League over the weekend was seriously fast. In fact, it was probably the fastest ever. Uh, Jess Hull knocked 1.52 seconds off her own Aussie record when she posted a time of 3 minutes 57.29, finishing third in the race. The winner, two-time Olympic champion Faith Kipyogen, finished with a scorching time of 3.49.11. That is Crazy. What did we decide she was running? 25Ks an hour. Yeah, at the end. It's ridiculous. That set the new world record by almost a second. I think that world record had stood since 2018, I want to say, so a good five years. Yeah, cool. Um, Hull was joined in the final by two other Aussies with Abby Caldwell coming home in sixth and Lyndon Hall finishing tenth. That middle distance stock is strong. It's so strong, isn't it? They're almost competing for each other's positions a mm. lot of the time. 
Hull said after the race, that race has been in my legs for a few years now and it was a matter of maturing as an athlete, probably from the mental side of things. Committing to a race that was going to go that quick shows some maturity and some big steps forward and I think we can go a little bit quicker because I was in no man's land for a lot of it and I know that if I could have stayed connected, then maybe we could go a bit quicker. It was pretty crazy to be part of a world record race and I didn't realise what had happened because I was wrecked when I finished. But I was so excited when I realised we all respect Faith so much and it seems right that she has the world record now because she truly is the greatest and it's really exciting to be a part of it. It's funny, you know, we watched the highlights of it, watched the race, and to see the girls getting around each other and getting around Faith in particular, it was a real camaraderie and I think from what I've seen that kind of distance athletics because you have to really empty yourself. Like you go to a dark place. dig deep. And even when we chatted to Jess about this was – well, a couple of Season years ago one, now. This was a while back on the TFAT podcast. The idea of each of them being the rabbit. Is it called the mm. rabbit? It sounded weird in my head. But it is a real, it's very individual, but even in their training and the way that they prepare for it, it, it is a team preparation for it. So it's cool the level of respect they have for each other. Yeah, it was really nice to see. Um, also at that event, Western Australian pole vaulter Nina Kennedy recorded a season's best of 4.61 metres to claim third in the women's pole vault event. How good. In basketball, FIBA have announced that former Opals captain, world champion and three-time Olympian with two silver medals. That should, if you're listening, who do you think it is? Have a guess. Can I buzz in? You cheat, but yes. <laughs> the great Penny Taylor. So Love good. So good. It's Penny gonna be, Taylor. It's be a bit controversial here, but she was always my favourite basketballer more than LJ. More than I loved Penny Taylor, also because mum was called Penny, so I thought it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. She's definitely not your mother, though. Continue. She's not my mum. She'll be inducted into the FIBA Hall of Fame later this year. She also won three WNBA championships with Phoenix Mercury and played across Europe and Asia in a 19-year professional career that began in the WNBL with the Australian Institute of Sport in 1997. Her career highlight would arguably be when she was named tournament MVP at the 2006 World Championships that the Opals won. She spoke about that time saying, the goal for me was always to win and that's the only time we won a gold medal as the Opals. Isn't that crazy? Taylor now lives in Phoenix, Arizona and has two kids with WNBA legend Diana Taurasi that keep her busy. She said, my life is pretty much consumed with children and home life. So it's a nice little reminder that I once did something else other than this. It's also good because you forget what you did. There were so many years of continuously playing year round all the different seasons and it kind of just flies by. Congratulations, PT. Very well deserved. I guess in some voice news, we're obviously having a referendum this year in Australia. Last week, more than 20 of Australia's leading sports organisations came together to present a group statement urging Australians to vote yes in the upcoming referendum. The sporting organisations include the AFL, Cricket Australia, the NRL, Rugby Australia, Netball Australia, Football Australia, Motorsport Australia and the NBL. Quick pause, just a very short one-liner about for maybe for our international listeners who don't know what's going on there. Yeah, so the voice to parliament is um, a referendum that will change the constitution and Mm -hmm. it will give an Indigenous voice to our government processes. Nice. Is that great? Thanks. <laughs> the letter was published in major news. A bit under a bit of pressure there. The letter- <laughs> Did you stress out? I can't tell if you're going red or if it's the neon light. Behind <laughs> def- def- you. Absolutely the orange neon light. The amazing TFAP sign. 
The letter was published in major newspapers around the country last week and was an open letter addressed to Australian sport fans asking them to listen with an open heart and an open mind through this historic moment. I really like that. Mm. Um, The letter read in part, sport has always served as a unifying force for our diverse Australian society. Regardless of where we come from or what we believe in, sport brings people together in the spirit of achievement, community and celebration. Moreover, sport plays a significant role in reconciling Australia. It has long been a means to the inclusion and celebration of the incredible achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This year, all Australians will have their say in a referendum to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. We as a collective support recognition through a voice. Um, former AFL champion Eddie Betts, who I love. Love Eddie Betts. God, I love him. He's the third on the all-time games list for Indigenous players in AFL. He said it was important that the sporting codes come together. Betts said it means a lot because sport is a big platform to create change. All I want for my people is to have a voice in whatever organisation they're in. Eddie, I think, sums it up, and I really applaud him for taking some responsibility, um, you know, to be at the front of this conversation. We were talking about it at home, and I think just if you really wanted to drain it, and I know she doesn't get involved, but if you got Kathy involved in this, it'd be a fait accompli, wouldn't it? The people listen to Kathy. The people. Seriously, like it just would it did happen. Absolutely. So if you're listening, Kathy, can you imagine if Kathy listens to our podcast? It's asking a lot. Maybe she does. I'd love to interview. <laughs> <laughs> that was a desperate plea. <laughs> She actually wouldn't because she'd be bricking it and she probably wouldn't speak. I'd be so nervous. You'd be in pieces. I feel nervous even talking about it. (laughs) My face is going flush now. Okay, we're moving on. In paddling, another Jess was out there doing some serious goat things over the weekend. This one had a paddle in her hand and was flying down rapids in Augsburg, Germany. Jess Fox absolutely dominated the women's canoe field at the first ICF Canoe Slalom World Cup event of the season. 24 hours earlier, Fox was pretty disappointed when she missed a gate in the semifinals of the K1, ruling her out of the final. But the C1 event was a completely different story. Fox's run in the final was pretty much perfect, attracting no penalties and finishing 6.51 seconds ahead of second place. That is an absolute spanking of the rest of the field. She has had a big preseason, hasn't she? You can tell she's been working hard. I watched the race online and the commentator was like, you know, anything over whatever it was would be good. She smashed what, like his predicament by five seconds. Prediction? Prayer. <laughs> Get rid of that, please, Bailey. like an idiot. <laughs> Keep it in. <laughs> Jess said after the victory, it was a tough day on the water yesterday in the kayak and I was really frustrated. So I wanted to come back today and put down some good paddling. The first step was making that final, so there was relief there. But then in the final, last to start and putting out a really good run, I was so happy. It was a really tricky course from start to finish. It's always nice to start well. It's a long season, so hopefully we can keep building throughout the season. I'm really pleased to start off well in C1. Hopefully next weekend we'll be better in the kayak as well. Go, Jess Fox, you absolute gun. In rugby league... State of Origin 1 was played last Thursday night and it was an 18-10 victory for the Queensland Maroons in Parramatta. Did you have a good time out there? I did have a good time. Um, it was hosted by Minerva and Western Sydney Business in a corporate box. So we went with a couple of my teammates and finished our training session and went straight to the game for some dinner and a beer to watch a bit of footy. It was quite fun. Yeah, good. That's living. The game was played in front of 12,972 fans, including Chloe. 
which was the biggest crowd in women. Ashley, did you scan in? Yes, I did. Good. Just out there for everyone. Just oh, I'm always make sure about counting numbers. In. How yeah. do you not scan in? Well, sometimes when you're in corporate areas and guests and things like that, you just show yep. your landed and wander in. Yeah. Get a ticket. Scan Great it. point. Scan in. I like that. So it was played in front of 12,972 fans, which was the biggest crowd in women's origin history. That number looks to be under threat, I reckon, for game two in Townsville on June 22nd, given that I think that the, so the, the equation stands now because of the two-game two series that the Maroons have to win and they win or lose by eight or less. Correct. Yeah. And then there's some weird rules that we don't need to get into. If they were first to, tries if New South Wales won eight. by eight, yes. Ridiculous. Anyway, um, yeah, I think Townsville might be smashing that record just quietly. The match was pretty entertaining, I reckon. Good hits. Um, but there were a number of handling errors and – some calls were that the game was pretty scrappy in comparison to last season's high-quality match in Canberra, and I reckon that could be explained by the timing of the series. Running this women's series alongside the men's, I get that there's the hype and the media, but it does result in the players going into the series pretty underdone. The NRLW season doesn't start for another few months. They just started preseason last week, and only rugby league the players have potentially been playing since last year's NRLW finals is local rugby league comps in Sydney and Brisbane, which also ended a number of weeks ago anyway. And it's also, even though the standard in the Harvey Norman competition is really high, the intensity of a state of origin game is so different. Well, and also just when we talk about professional, semi-professional environments, those Harvey Norman teams are training two or three nights a week as opposed to an NRLW kind of program, which Mm -hmm. is just physically preparing you to be in a better playing state. Yeah, so obviously the direct comparison is that last season's last season's origin in Canberra was an ex, was played at the end of the NRLW season, and it was a cracker of a game. As we said, there's no lack of intensity on display, and Queensland got the four tries to do to two victory, and it was a double to winger Julia Robinson that proved the difference. She scored the first and the last tries of the contest. She was just strong out on the wing, wasn't she? Yeah, she is strong. She won't be playing next game though. No. De- well, unless she fights the charge. Debutante Queensland prop Keely Joseph was named player of the match and the game, as we said, was not without some controversy. New South Wales co-captain Isabel Kelly was hit in the throat by a forearm as she attempted to tackle Robinson in the 33rd minute. The contact to the throat left Kelly in serious discomfort and coughing up blood. She was cleared of any serious damage but did remain under observation, observation in hospital until Saturday. So she was in there kind of two nights. And did she end up in the ICU? It was yeah. pretty serious at one point. I think when they're worried about your throat swelling, mm. <laughs> it's kind of necessary to breathe that, that thing. Um, post-match Blues coach Kylie Hilda did question why there was no penalty award as a result of the contact. She said, it's a big concern for me when we've got a player on the ground in discomfort and not in a great way and she was struggling to breathe. And also while Kelly was down receiving treatment, play was allowed to continue and a 12-player New South Wales team conceded a try as she was being helped from the field just to rub some salt in the injury wounds. And that was an interesting one. I don't know what happened on TV in terms of where the camera was looking, but for us, we saw we obviously saw Kelly go down and two Queensland players were hovering with her. So you almost know that it's a bad injury when the opponents stop to check on you. Like she was in some serious pain. So it's a weird thing that they've even gone over to her and the refs haven't stopped the game. Yeah, I think I'm sure the referees have reviewed that and realised they got that wrong because even watching on telly, you could see the impact, you could see her reach for a throat, which straight away is concerning. Yeah. 
I don't I don't think there was any intention in it. You know, Robinson had her arm up trying to protect herself from a tackle. It happens a lot. Mm. But the way that she was grasping at her throat and, like you said, the plays around her show concern, for me, you've got to stop the game right then and there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think. And, and they did score that try whilst she was being carried off, which is <sighs> controversial. Mm. On Friday, it was announced that Robinson has been hit with a grade two dangerous contact charge and faces one to two matches out for the 33rd minute incident. And again, with no club matches between Origin clashes in the two-game series, she'll be she'll miss the final game unless she successfully fights the charge at the NRL Judiciary. It's just for me. I just think that yes, the hype around State of Origin at the moment is great, but they're not double headers. So that you remove that kind of equate that from the equation, and they're not the the girls aren't at their peak physically. It's just not possible. Um, I just think putting this in the middle of the NRLW season, like play six games, give the rest of the comp a couple of weeks off Mm -hmm. or even chop it into three or whatever it is, but find a time for them to play in and around their NRLW competition so they're actually fit. And then when something like this happens, you can serve your suspension at club level because a one to two game suspension at club level is different to a one to two game suspension at state of origin level. And I think to your point, they've obviously done it to try and I guess ride the marketing and the hype around origin and I think I think it's a positive decision they're trying to move both the men's and women's games forward and I think it is an inclusive decision but I think as you've said the priority should be these players being fit being game fit and ready to play like you prioritize the quality of the product of the game over the marketing and hype exactly and you know again just if we really want to compare apples with apples could you imagine if the NRL came out and said, okay, guys, we're going to play Origin in January? Silly. It's a silly decision when you look at it like that. that's what's happening. Yeah, correct. You know, the, the boys have played no rugby league since end of season trips. We'll just start with Origin. Yeah, it's – I get it. They've def, they're not completely – they've definitely had a crack at making this the best it can be, but I think the timing and the number of games needs to be looked at. Agreed. This episode is brought to you by The Athlete's Foot. Proudly supporting women in sport since 1976. Start every game on the right foot with the right fit. Get fitted in store today or online at theathletesfoot.com for netball, football, running and recovery. Now that's fit. Uh, In football news, FIFA is still to confirm broadcast deals between some of Europe's biggest nations, including the UK, France, Germany, Italy and Spain to show the upcoming World Cup. And sports ministers from those countries are starting to get frustrated. Rightly so. Look at, like, some of those, like, the UK in particular, like, powerhouses in the game. The fact that it hasn't been sorted. From what I've read, the UK are the closest to getting right. a deal done. Um, and because of that sheer demand mm. for female football over there. They've all called, so the sports ministers have all called for FIFA and broadcasters to quickly reach an agreement. And in a joint statement, have said, we have acknowledged with concern that until now, no television rights have been attributed for the matches broadcasting in our countries. We are aware of the legitimate interests and budgetary constraints pressuring both assignees and independent broadcasters who need a viable economic model for each of them. We also recognise the specific organisational constraints that are likely to affect the market value of the European broadcasters' rights, period, and hours of broadcasting. So we know the time difference doesn't exactly help those European markets. Yeah, look, I was thinking about this when I was reading 
these articles. And I agree. So obviously the one of the articles I read kind of focus on the UK. I think the Lionesses pool matches were any time between 7 a.m. and 12 p.m. England time or UK time. That's not that bad. That's really not bad For at me, all. that is a lot more palatable than a 2 a.m. kickoff. If you can have it in the waking hours of the day, there's no real excuse, is there? No. Like if every single kickoff was 2 a.m., I'd get it. But those those daytime ones, it's funny. It actually the memory that it, it kind of sparked in me was the um, Rio. Ah, tw- yes, twenty sixteen <laughs> rugby sevens that they, I think the women's team won that. And did they? <laughs> I was there, so I'm not. I don't didn't experience it firsthand. But a lot of my friends um, <laughs> did post things like you know they had their school kids watching it in class. Absolutely. watching it in the office together. Like it was a shared moment. Like you said, it was in daylight hours and it was kind of cool that it was everyone was at their places of work turning on the telly or, you know, literally putting on the television and sitting the kids down in front saying, watch some history, kids. Absolutely. And it's not just a random club game that's happening. Like this is this is a huge occasion. It's a World Cup. You want people to be tuning in, even if it is at 9 a.m. in their workplace or school. I reckon PE teachers across Europe are cheering that it's on. They love it. What's doing period two, miss? Oh, you're watching the game. (laughs) So good. (laughs) The statement continues. We had a major segue there, but the statement continues. We are convinced that the media coverage of the Women's World Cup will be decisive in improving the global visibility of women's sports in our European countries. Media exposure to women's sports has indeed a highly significant impact on the development of women's and young girls' sports practices. Because of the high potential of the FIFA Women's World Cup and the sport and social issues at stake, we consider it our responsibility to fully mobilise all stakeholders for them to quickly reach an agreement. So this all comes after FIFA president Gianni Infantino threatened a broadcast blackout after describing the current offers for the tournament's television rights from Europe's Big Five as a slap in the face for the women's game. FIFA Secretary General Fatma Samura said she was hopeful that a mutually beneficial agreement would be struck shortly and she told Fox Sports, those who bought the rights to the last Women's World Cup at that time in Europe know how much it brings because we have reached record numbers during many matches. Today, we are just asking them to revisit their figures and discussions are ongoing and I'm sure that an agreement will be reached. It's interesting that Gianni Infantino is threatening a blackout. Like that is absolutely not the answer and I'm sure and hoping that it's just kind of posturing. But because as we've said time and time again, visibility is so key. And yes, he w- I, I absolutely applaud them, FIFA, for saying they, they need more. But the alternative cannot be not showing the games. It, that's not the solution. It's probably the worst solution. And, it, it ha- you know, the games have to be visible. The players have to be on the stage they deserve to be on. And it needs to be on free-to-wear television live. Well, last week's statistics that we shared from DAZN were a perfect example of what happens when people get free access to women's football. Exactly. Huge growth. Go <laughs> listen to the episode if you haven't yet. Visibility makes it viable, people. In netball, the Collingwood Magpies upset ladder-leading Adelaide Thunderbirds 53-50 in emotional scenes at John Kane Arena on Saturday. How good does ladder-leading sound? <laughs> ladder-leading. <laughs> the winner, the win, the win was a ray of light for the players who have no idea where their future lies after the season finishes for them in a few weeks. And the playing group did not miss having a shot at the Collingwood organisation after the victory. 
in the change rooms. They belted out the song and it contained a little lyric change. I loved it. So good. So normally the words are good old Collingwood forever. Sorry, Kirst. Sorry. <laughs> it's upset so when I talk about Collingwood. Um, but they were changed to good old Collingwood for two weeks. It's so good. I need to get the video up on our socials. It's, it's quality from them. A tragic and slightly amusing summation of the playing group's future. Um, the match, which was only their third win of the season, was technically the Magpies' last home game, but they will face off at John Kane Arena, John Kane Arena again next round in a sold-out Victorian derby against the Vixens. That'll be huge. It'll be massive. That's on Monday, I believe. Holiday Monday. On Sunday, the New South Wales Swift defeated the Giants. Oh, oh sad. Oh, I'm sad for the Giants. In front of another sold-out crowd at Ken Rosal Arena. Love that part, though. The 68-63 win sees the Swifts sit on top of the ladder now with one more win than the Thunderbirds in second place and the West Coast Fever in third. It's super tight at the top and there's only two more rounds before finals. Very close. In a bit of sports media news, I was contacted a few months ago actually by someone named Lexi who works with MediaNet and they were doing some research into females working in sports broadcasting and journalism. They have put together some pretty awesome research, Bez. Um, around representation of coverage of women as journalists, but also as subject matter. Nice. Let's go with that. The report's called You Can't Be What You Can't See, Female Representation in Australian Sports Journalisms. And the key findings are a little bit eye-opening, but there's some encouraging parts. The report is the product of a month-long analysis of the sports media landscape across January 2023 and it aimed to identify the number of women reporting in the sports industry and the frequency of female sports coverage. Look, that was a much better sentence than what I said before. It's probably why I should just stick to the research, but that's fine. I liked it. You just throw you a little bit of pizzazz. Pizzazz on there. Gross word. I don't like it. It's a terrible word. The research showed 17% of sports journalists working in the Australian mainstream media are female, 15% of digital sports media was written by a female journalist. 62% of articles focused on women were written by a male author and 72% of articles focused on male sport. However, the report found there is more visibility and investment in women's sport than ever before. An increasing number of outlets are now providing a space for female sports journalists to write about female sports on their own terms. I think even that stat around 72% of articles focusing on male sport does that mean we're 28% or do you think it's like there's not a huge amount of mixed gender sports, I imagine, that would be taking up that slot? What came to mind was horses. Oh. Animals. I don't remember reading. I had a look at the report. I don't remember reading that part. Did you see anything about horses in there? No. I might follow up with Lexi and check. Mm. But, yeah, it, if 28%, it's sad that we think that that's not a bad number, but it's, I think it's definitely an improvement from the numbers that I've seen previously. It is trending in the right direction. And I think, as we said, that that part where there's more female sports journalists giving opportunity to write about female sports in these spaces is surely the start of the wave. It has to be. You know, the fact that actually encouraging female journalists just to write about what they want to write about is great. Yeah, agreed. Let's take a look at the key story. But back into football, there was a concerning article on The Athletic last week that details new restrictions on the English Lionesses that could see them breaching contracts they've already signed with commercial partners. 
The English FA have stated that the players are not allowed to make any physical appearances such as photo shoots for sponsors from June 17 onwards, nor interact on social media to promote their sponsors from July 5th, which is two weeks before the tournament starts, the World Cup that is. From July 5th onwards, only official World Cup and FA sponsors are allowed to be promoted. What the FA have kind of effectively done is only six weeks prior to the English, English team leaving for Australia is ban players from taking part in any personal commercial activities while they are a member of the, that English squad. Their reasoning for it, Bez, is that they've said the new regulations have been put in place to ensure players rest on days off. I think that's a weird way to go about it. Um, the performance-based reasoning is understandable as you do need to rest during a tournament, but given the players may have already committed to partner media requests, it could leave them open to some issues with their contracts. Further to tricky contract requirements, a ban does feel like a restriction of trade and a barrier to women reaching their full earning potential while playing in the biggest event for their sport. We know how often they rely on endorsements like this to make up for unequal pay in their day-to-day playing salaries and contracts. And prize money fever. Nice. Love that shout out. (laughs) (laughs) And the attention the Lionesses have received since their Euro final win, the move from the FA could not really have come at a worse time. Sponsors are queuing up to enter the women's game and commercial sponsorship is a huge driver for football in this current climate. Now, the English FA is not the only federation that have these sorts of measures in place. Football Australia also has issued commercial guidance with the Matildas policy coming into effect even earlier in June. However, the Matildas have been aware of that requirement for some time and as such, they would have structured their commercial agreements accordingly. The ban is – look, it's it's not uncommon. I know that you guys – Olympics and things like that, you're definitely restricted about what you can and can't wear and promote and all of those types of things. But so it is, it's an extension of a longstanding rule at a lot of major tournaments where official partners of the teams and and competitions are the only ones visible at stadiums, training facilities and hotels. But the question that needs to be asked, Chloe, is does the commercial blackout limit and discourage investment in women's football at a time when additional sources of income are vital for continued growth? I've got a lot to say about I this. I can see. You can see it. I'm excited. She's buzzing in. As you said, we had same thing that happens for Olympics. And I think it's valid for tournaments that are so huge because of what the sponsors pay. The sponsors are paying for the rights to that period of time. So I think commercially the blackout period like you said, is common and probably makes sense from what they're trying to sell. What I think the unfortunate part is the fact that they've done it so late means that, so let's say a player has a protein sponsor. They're sponsored by BSC in their day-to-day training and life and they post about them on social media and the World Cup sponsor is True Protein. Let's go with that. If this ban had come into place earlier, the athlete could have actually worked out with their regular sponsor, let's fulfill all of these deliverables and obligations prior to the World Cup, whereas them now almost being in this really tricky spot where they might not be able to fulfill those expectations and potentially lose out on money. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that we've witnessed in it, and it is I from an outsider looking in, when you're not kind of involved in in sport on a day-to-day basis, people think there's a lot more money in it than there is because the ones, the, the people, the athletes you see that are front of mind are doing really well. But, again, harping back to that 2016 um, Rio goal that someone close to me won, um, there was genuine 
chat around the fact that you guys will get home and get endorsements coming at you left, right and centre. You'll you know, be able to do whatever you want. Just didn't happen. And not saying that, you know, Australian rugby or the Australian Olympic Committee didn't do what they needed to do, but the reality is that female athletes are still so underpaid in comparison. We really need to give them every single opportunity that is available to them to promote themselves as a brand and to make money. Love it. That's great. I don't have anything to contribute. I think you've nailed it. Let's take a look at what to watch. The World Surf League moves to Central America this week with the waiting period for stop seven of the WCT, the Surf City El Salvador Pro, starting on June 9th, which is Friday. You can catch all the action live on Foxtel and the Seven Network. This weekend will be the second last game for the Collingwood Magpies in Suncorp Super Netball. And it will be a sold-out Melbourne derby against the Vixens on Monday, the 12th of June. The game starts at 1pm at John Kane Arena, and you can bet it will be an emotional derby. Catch it live on Fox and KO, or as Bez typed, Kath it live. Kim's going to be there too. Can we, In- <laughs> can we confirm that it's not yet sold out? I think I read it sold out. Oh, is it already? Yeah. Wow, okay. I didn't want to discourage people if they were looking for tickets, but no, sorry, you're too late. Well, no, but absolutely jump online because these things, you know, can pop up. True. In the WNBA, the Seattle Storm take on the Washington Mystics on Monday, the 12th of June. Tip-off is 5 a.m. And you can watch live on ESPN, which is via Foxtel. But we will be absolutely watching and cheering loudly for the Storm, who have, who not only wear green and gold, because so that's always an easy cheer, but they've got three Aussies. When you think about this, actually, we've spoken probably at length about WNBA only having 12 players. This is a quarter of their roster. Pretty good ratio, I should isn't probably it? tell everyone who they are. Ezzy Magdawal, Jade Melbourne, and Sammy Whitcomb. So good. Can't wait to watch the replay at a reasonable hour. <laughs> Especially on a holiday Monday. Oh, not a holiday for you. AFLW never sleeps. Never sleeps. And that's the wrap. That is the wrap. See you next week, friend. Don't forget Thursday morning. Oof, Emily Van Egmont, get your ears around it. How good. Thank you, Nike. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>